Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production and digital productions. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on today. We have an old friend of mine, Alan Hawks. He's going to be here. He's one of the one of the best CG artists I've ever worked with. And um, so I'm really excited to, to talk about his journey um, and, and how he got there and what he's learned. And uh, we're hoping to hoping to pull him in, have him here more often. So so stay tuned for that and, and take a look at uh, his background and, and be ready for asking questions for the second hour. Uh, and of course, you can ask questions for the first hour. We've got a little bit of room today, so we um, we should be able to cover them. We're going to probably take a little more time to, to cover these. And so uh, we've got a great panel here, so stay tuned for that. Um, and uh, now let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Keely, what do we have? Our first question is from Jasmine Lee in Singapore. When live streaming from Mumbai to Zurich via LiveView, there's a static in the audio that sounds almost like digital music. It happens indoors and outdoors as well. Any suggestions for a cause? Go ahead, Chris. Uh, I think you, it's no surprise to you, Alex. I have no idea what the answer to this is. But I have a very interesting side note. It could be anything. But, but He's prior, got a great anecdote. Prior to the show... Uh, John was saying, why is audio so difficult? And I said, the only time audio isn't difficult is when you, you're in a bar with a band and a couple of PV speakers on sticks and everybody's drunk. That's the only time the audio isn't <laughs> difficult. Is the only time audio isn't difficult. Uh, you know, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, you can go ahead. I was going to tell a silly story, but it's okay. You know, I think that the the interesting thing about audio that makes it hard is that you can't see it. And, but we spend so much, so with video, you can go, oh, you can look at it and you can see how you can look at a bunch of monitors and see what's going on with audio. When people talk about that, I always go, well, I'd, I'd much rather, I, I try to hire audio people and teach them video. I don't try to take video people and teach them audio. It's very hard to go from video to audio and it takes a lot of work and you can do it, but it, wow, it's a huge lift. With audio, when you take someone from audio and you move them into video, they're like, oh yeah, this it's everything in video is way easier than what they've been doing. And, you know, especially when you look at a digital mixer, there is so much going on that they have to really in their head they have to build this huge model of what all those things mean and what all these, you know, and they have to see, be able to see in their head and imagine all the pipelines and buses and DCAs and everything else that are there. Yeah. And, and I think that that makes it, makes an audio person just be able to visualize their pipeline a lot better. You also have to begin to wrap your head around all of the different ways that uh, things that can go wrong. I mean, this could be an right. atmospheric thing. I remember the first time, uh, you know, 40 years ago when I, took, you know, an audio cable and a power cable and I crossed them and the buzz went away. Yeah. It's like, good grief, how, who figures this stuff? Who figures out this kind of black magic? Well, so, and, I mean, it could be anything. Well, and, and, and I, you know, the problem is also is you get into something and if you have enough control, you start doing things that keep it from happening. But then people forget how it actually, why that actually works. So, for instance, for a long time within PixelCore, all the power went one, uh, down one side of the, of the room and all the signals went down the other side of the room. And that was just the way you built things. And nobody, like, I realized that we had gotten two or three employees deep, you know, not, not employees, but in, uh, rounds of hiring where people just knew that you put power down one side and, and signal down the other. They had no idea why we do that. They just knew right. that, that, that and, and then they had no idea. If th things went wrong, they didn't understand what it was because they hadn't, they'd never seen it, you know? And, and so, uh, so that's a, that's another challenge there. But the, uh, specifically with the live view, we've, 
I've seen this before. Um, so here's the here's what I think is happening. Uh, live view is um, a live view has the compression is set very very high on a live view for audio. So it can be either 32 bit or or not 32 bit, but 32 um, k or or six or 64 k, and and so that's a very low rate for sending audio. And so the the issue is is that um, what you uh, what you need to do is is there's two things two two ways to handle so that what what's happening is is that the static is being quantized um, so that it is being it's it's you know it's creating little blocks of bits and those bits will sound like so when you're talking about with that sound that digital music I bet it sounds a little like a little drum and it's just it's just garbling really really slow really really low but you'll hear it going across that's the compression just turning into turning music into little blocks. And those little block, those little bits are just, and and so that's what I think is happening. And we've heard this happen with live views in the past. The way that you handle that is one of two ways: you put in a, a cedar or use sound devices, uh, noise assist. You get rid of that sound. What it's what it is? It's high frequency sound, so wind, um, but it could also be uh, too much fan noise, too indoors. Uh, it can be anything that is high frequency and low, like kind of it's a, it's a low value, high frequency noise. Um, will create, it just doesn't know, have any bits to handle that. And so you either have to get rid of that or you call Live View and get them to update your back, backpack to give you a higher compression. It's capable of it. <laughs> so it's, it's I, I prob, probably, I might not get a free Live View for saying that on a show, but, uh, or a lender, but, um, but the, uh, yeah, you can call them and talk to them about it in specific instances and see if you can't get more, more bandwidth out of the audio. It's, it, the, 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 the audio itself, the, the the backpack is capable of more than what it's set to. So, um, I've never understood why they made it so, uh, why they made it such a low value for the audio, given that the video is so, using up so much bandwidth. But they do. I so, know why. Yeah, because they don't. I actually they, know cause, why. Because the person who did it is a video person, not an audio yes, person. Yes. Because <laughs> gamers don't understand the yes, difference exactly. between bitrate and frame rate. Yeah, no, I think it is. I think it's it's a video person thinking, well, we'll just make it. They saw something like that'll be good enough for whatever, and then they just knocked it down to that. Yeah, you're probably right. All right, um, next question. Our next question comes from John Swan in Houston, Texas. What does the panel think of the eye contact feature by NVIDIA, AI technology that simulates eye contact correction for video chats? It's in beta currently, but seems impressive. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, two things. Alex will tell you the first time it doesn't work, it's it's trash. I, I heard you say that a couple of weeks ago, Alex, and I totally agree because we connect with human beings through our eyes. And if you're and if the eyes of the person you're talking to are do one little, you know, bug out, uh, you, you, you'll have a hard time connecting with that person because you were thinking about why did his eyes do that. I will also say this: um, I saw the demo, and you're right. The demo looks super impressive, but demos do look impressive. And the reason demos look impressive is people spend a lot of time working on demos and a lot of money creating content that the demo will work well with, right? Because they don't want to show you the thing not working perfectly and not working well. I literally don't trust any demo. Thanks, John. Any demo ever. Like never, ever when somebody goes, hey, watch this. I don't care. I literally don't care. And part of the reason I don't care is I know the people that have made completely fake demos. Demos that were designed to be able to be 
you know, problems, they insert problems into content so that their demo can fix the, the problem. I, I just, demos, I don't care. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Jason. So let me get this straight, Fenwick. It's like you've cut enough infomercials that you'll never buy anything that is as seen on TV ever again, basically. Is that, is that about right? But if I go to the as seen in TV store in the mall and I like it, then I'll buy it. But you're right. You're right. It, you, can't, you can't believe a demo. I, I will tell you that the Ronco uh, dehydrator is pretty, it's pretty awesome. Now for that slap chop I've always Turkey. wanted. Yeah, the slap chop. Why, why did I? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, one of the things yeah, I think wow. is going to be, I, I, I do think that uh, like many things, we're getting more, I think there's, there's an opportunity. Usually what happens is, is that if everybody's going one direction and you go another, you, you do really well because everybody's fading, you know, this huge amount of effort is going one way. It doesn't mean that you're going to get the majority, but you're going to get a bigger chunk of that minority area. I think there's going to be a huge opportunity coming for people, for platforms that don't allow you to do anything digitally. Don't allow, I, I think there's going to be um, settings or platforms or something that are going to basically say, you can't, you, you know, we'll make it really hard to put things in that we don't, that you can't, that you're not typing yourself. We're not going to let you use bots. We're not going to let you use, um, we're not going to let you use digital backgrounds. We're not going to let you use filters that improve your, you know, like there's all these things that it, that it will kind of push away from. And I think that there's a group of people that are going to gravitate towards that because the fakery is, is dehumanizing. <laughs> you know? And so, uh, and I think that people are going to, as, as it gets you know, more like we're talking now about uh, chat GPT, using chat GPT and other things like that to post, you know, do your posts, you know, for Facebook and Twitter. And my whole thing is, why would you do that? Like, like I understand why businesses would do that, but it's kind of like, it, it, it's like that was, it started off as a personal expression and now it's become like, we're going to have a machine do that for me. And, and it's because it just became transactional. And, and I think that I think that there's going to be um, more tools that are built out there that require human interaction. Um, that that are because they um, because it's you know because people are going to feel. And I think this is going to be one of those things that's one of many things that makes people feel disconnected. And I think a lot of times, you know, we we have a really pro a big problem with depression right now in much, many parts of the world, especially in the United States. And I think it's directly connected to a lot of things like this, you know, the mechanization. And I, I know that I'm, I sound like a Luddite on a, on, a, on a show, but I think that that is, that mechanization is something that is starting to, you know, unwind people because they're not connected to their lives. Yeah, go ahead, John. As a tangential thought, uh, NVIDIA's big annual conferences next week starting on march 20th there's some fascinating sessions going to go on next week so yeah. I, and it's all online yeah jason no amount of ai is going to um defeat you know a million years of unconscious intuition and um People are are you know despite being gullible are incredibly good at 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 being misled by a face right like well, that's just how we're built. The I think that the issue is is that the most what 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 I've learned over time is that what people notice is not what you should worry about. It's how they feel, and they will feel something much faster than they will notice it. 
And the problem is, is that feeling operates in their lower brain, not in their upper brain. So, and, and you have so little access to that. Like as a, as a person, as a content creator or someone that's on a, on a thing, you have so little access to having, making any difference to their lower brain. And you have a lot of control over what they think about in their upper brain. But when they feel something that isn't right, or they feel not connected, the chances of you turning that is so hard that you don't want to get in... <laughs> You don't want to go there. You want it. You wanted to feel like it's connected, feel like it's real, feel like it's there. And if you miss it at all, like you know, like a lot of people are like, "Well, I'm tired of VFX." VFX. When we say there's no VFX, uh, it means that we did it really, really well. In the fact that you don't feel like it's VFX, you know. But Top Gun had two twenty two hundred VFX shots. It just didn't feel that way. Um, you know, because they, because they did them so well and they, and the things that the kind of things they did were great waiting, you know, great momentum. Those are things that are there. So, but the problem is, is a lot of other things feel fake and people don't even know why they don't know why that the physics don't look right or the, the facial thing doesn't work. They don't know what it is. They don't notice it even. They just feel like, well, that feels fake and they don't know why. And, and I think that that's why people pull away from those things. And so I think that the problem we have with this is a Again, if you notice it, definitely. But there'll also be one of those things where it, it's eerie. Like something doesn't work. The fa- the head isn't in the right place for the eyes. And people will get, uh, you know, it'll weird them out in a way that they can't understand. It'll create just stress for them, cognitive load. And they won't know where it's coming from. And that's the worst kind. Like that is the worst kind of cognitive load is I feel uncomfortable and I don't know why is, is the most damaging thing that you can do to your content. Um, you know, and so I think that that's the thing you have to kind of watch. And that's why we stay away from virtual backgrounds. That's why we stay away from filters. That's why we, you know, like we, we, we want it to be as real as we can because it reduces that cognitive load of I, something's wrong and I don't know why. Um, next question. A newcomer to Office Hours, Alex, Alex Lindsay from Novato, California, is asking, can Fenwick talk about his adventures with the Korg Nano and Sound Desk? Fenwick and I were talking about it. We were texting <laughs> back and forth and I didn't really understand what he was talking about. So I figured, well... Let's get him on the show and grill, grill him. <laughs> so um, that was my old podcast, The Grill, Final Cut Grill. Uh, so the trick with the the trick with the Nano. So uh, t- to recap, we've been playing around with uh, uh, this uh, Soundex software as creating a headphone mix and also a mix at what I call a aux to broadcast, or what I want to send to you. Uh, via Zoom um, or a- anything else, uh, Teams, uh, what, whatever. So, um, so that's what the mixer is doing. But the real cool part is with the little, uh, I think it's like $70 Korg Nano, $80 Korg Nano, I can actually control that thing with a hardware <clears throat> interface on the desk. So if I show you uh, this right here, uh, this channel number two, and I don't, sorry, I don't have a, a, a way of showing you what I'm doing with my other hand, but I'll take my hand off the mouse. That is, ter- oh, wait, hold on, I gotta, sorry, uh, one extra button over here. I'm starting a, a, a web browser window over here. And when I, um, when I fade this up, I can see the meters, and that, that's, that's a hardware fader. Now, the reason you don't hear it is that I have this channel muted and I have a mute button over there and then I have a fader for that. And when I turn this up, you'll hear Mark Spencer. Yeah? 
You don't hear it. Oh, I know why. And then on my you rave, now. I have over 100 gigabytes of yep. just original media. You hear it now? Yep. So for this... Okay. So, um, so the trick becomes, and this is what John and I were talking about beforehand, th there's two things you have to do. And yes, it does get complicated when you're not on PV speakers in a bar. Um, uh, the two things you're trying to do are mix what you hear, but also decide what you want to send out to the world. And you do that by creating an aux mix and, and all that. Now, the last thing, Alex, I was talking about is understanding um, this window. So this is the Korg control editor. And essentially what you do is it sees all the Korg devices on your system. And then it opens this up. Now, what you're going to use is you're going to put your Korg into what's called the CC. And I don't know what that means. I'll, uh, Mickey will tell me. It's like control change or something change, I think. You, and control change. And, and when you put the Korg into the CC mode, then the CC protocol works. And essentially what you do is you go, by, you go down to each knob and it highlights it. It tells you what the CC address is, 16, and then all these knobs. So, uh, and, and these are programmed to be um, the pan. And then on the sliders, you have a CC number zero through seven. And then the trick that ended up being hard was the mute button. Okay. So the, the Korg has a mute button and you want to be able to like right here, I want to be able to press this button and have it mute or not mute. Um, and the trick to that is this, this is, this gets super weird. So under here you go button behavior. And you see, oh, look at all these. These are toggle. These are all set to be toggle. And you have to go in, you have to click on these, and you have to go come down here and you make it momentary or you make it toggle, whatever it is. Okay. And the top one is solo. The middle one is mute. The bottom one is um, record enable, which is irrelevant in this situation so far. So once you set this to toggle, and I kept doing this, I was like, I'm setting it to toggle, you know, which means. You press it and it stays muted. And it's like, why doesn't it actually change? And the reason for that is really simple. Up here in the menu. Let me see you now. I don't see you. Oh, sorry. Face. Up here in the menu, it says communication, receive scene data, write scene data. So once you go through and you change all these to toggle because they default at momentary, momentary you don't even have to save this document. You just say, write this scene data. And there's a, I think there's a confirmation button that you have to hit and it goes and it throws that data into the Korg and, uh, and it make then that it, noise when it, yeah, I was about it, to say, what a great sound speaker. It goes and it, and it writes it into the Korg. The other thing that you need to know, and I think I sent you this in a text message. Uh, when you first plug in the Korg, Alex, you need to hold down the cycle button and the set button and then plug it in. And, and that wakes up the Korg and says, oh, I'm going to be a CC device. That's the, and, and, and that will give you most of the settings right. And then uh, there's probably a few numbers to, to learn, but it's, it's quite simple. And then one last thing, when you get into the, uh, the, the SoundLab 
sound loud lab thing. If I click on this, it's like, oh, look at this. So it's a CC protocol, which I have to select. Korg Nano Controller. I don't know what these other two holes here, but I've left those <laughs> as none. And then, so the fader is zero, starts at zero, the pan start at 16, and the solo start at 32, and the mute start at 48. And um, those are like some of the key little gotchas in terms of setting it up. And the reason, by the way, that it did not actually play the first time I played it is that it's still sort of flowing through my mix pre and it has a Korg nano controller too. And this is just a good thing to know about nano controllers in some instances, especially attached to the mix pre. And that might be the thing when I first wake it up in the morning, I have to touch the fader for everything once just got to nudge it to kind of wake it up. And I had not done that for the feed. That is the, uh, broadcast, and that's why you didn't hear it. But it's it's super fascinating, and I I haven't quite gotten accustomed to the ease of which how quickly I can fade things up and down because I have it on hardware control now instead of digging through a bunch of mouse clickies. But I, I'm I'm rapidly very much falling in love with it. Yeah, and I'm I'm playing around with. I, <clears throat> Chris got into because I was I got into it, and I was and I was. Uh, I, and Chris has gone way further than I. This, this is the best part of office hours is that you say something and then somebody else runs with it and has time to kind of, and then it saves me a lot of time trying to figure it out. Um, and so uh, the, uh, but but I think that what I'm trying to do is build a system on my Mac studio that is a mixture of Zoom ISO with uh, Mimo Live and um, Zoom ISO, Mimo Live and uh, Sound Desk so that I can build shows, you know, just, just sitting on the, on the Mac mini where it's, you know, I've got, the video all going into Memo Live. I've got the audio, you know, going out, um, you know, via Dante or or a loopback or whatever out <clears throat> into the computer. And I'm trying to do it all because the studio is so powerful. I'm trying to do it all in the same computer, so that I have I have just some windows open, and one of them is, is Sound Desk, another one's Memo Live, and then then the idea is to tie that into a Stream Deck as well as a Korg uh, Nano, so that you kind of have this like I'm cutting between things, I'm making things happen, I'm I'm changing all the volumes. You know, and I have, and the sound desk is a lot more than just having audio in a video tool. I mean, it's it's really a, a sound desk, and you have lots of filters and so on and so forth. And then I'm trying to see how far, like, did I, should I have bought an Ultra? It's going to be the question when I add all this stuff up. Yeah, go ahead, see, I knew we were your inadvertent, like, R&D team of failure. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So, so the, the other just thing, and <laughs> Keely, this is, a, this is in response to a question that's coming up that you can just delete, because uh, uh, it, it's, it's on the same topic. Uh, Preto and I found something very interesting, Alex. On an Intel Mac... If you put, and I realize that you are mm -hmm. above us all in a, all M1, M2 world, but on an Intel Mac, when you put the SoundDesk user interface on the primary display of my iMac Pro, mm -hmm. and you look at the activity monitor, it's in the like 60, 65% usage. I move the, all I have to do is drag that uh, window for the SoundDesk to my LG monitor. And it drops to, no, oh, sorry. It's the other way around, isn't it? It, it is. On, okay, the yeah. in, on the interior, it's on the, on the primary display, it's 12%. On the LG display, it's 60%. Yeah. On my vertical display, which is a lower resolution, it's in the like 
I have all these numbers wrong. Lowest on the primary, highest on the LG, in the middle on the yeah. on the yeah, low. That just means the way that they address the meters has to do with the resolution well, instead move, of an actual calibration. Move a couple different apps around and see what happens. Generally, the um, there's one, especially on an iMac, its internal um, its this internal part. support is much different than its external support, and it will always almost every app will take up more CPU if you move it off of the the main main thing. So. Well, I know what I'm doing for the rest of the show. Okay, thanks. Let's move it over. Let's see what it is. We, we, I, I'm expecting a whole like uh, a spreadsheet and a graph a little later. Uh, next, next question. Our next question comes from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Did we ever find out who did the LED walls for the Oscars? Bill almost got it, but his credits ran out, so he wasn't totally sure. Was it Canadian Darling's Sonova? I, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it matters. I, you, you don't want to really look at, like, we never think about, I mean, I never think about who the brand is that makes the LEDs because it's probably like one of three brands out of out of uh, uh, China <laughs> that's making all of these. And so they, they get different names on the outside of them. What you really want to do is look at the specs, you know, so you're looking at the refresh rate, the, um, again, the, the, um, the one that we pay the most attention to is pitch. Um, but also some of the black levels between the between this, you know, you're looking for the LEDs. I can't think of the name of it right off the top of my head. But there's there's what what you know what is in how big the actual LEDs are. There's the distance between the LEDs, and then there's the size of the LEDs themselves. What was important about what we what was used in the Oscars was not the brand, but it was the um, it was the, the you know the spec. And I don't know what the spec was, but I'm going to guess it was a 0.9 to 1.2 mil. Um, uh, LED because it would have been very hard to do it in any higher pitch than that. Uh, you would have started to see Marais and other things like that, and and they didn't they didn't show that at all ever. Like it was really really well done. It's probably one of the first times I've seen an LED wall behind people that I I, I don't think wow that was a mistake. <laughs> like every single time I see LED walls behind people, I'm like, well. Someone was in it. Someone did something stupid <laughs> because it's it's marade. It's you see the little pixelation. You see all the aliasing. You see all the stuff that goes wrong. And there's so many people that use LED walls and it doesn't work. And I think Apple events are the only ones I've seen that didn't have that, um, other than this one. And so that's why I'm guessing that the pitch is very very low. And it's also a very deep stage, which allowed made it made it a lot easier. So, but I think that what you're looking for is the specs, not so much the brand. Um, next question. Our next question comes from Vic Sines in Lowell, Indiana. I'm looking for a webcam to send to my panelist appearing in a weekly webinar. I don't have instant 360 budget, but I do need 1080p. Is the Logitech C920E at $59 from Amazon reasonable? And does anybody have other suggestions? Go ahead, Keely. Yeah, I think you'll do just fine with the Logitech C90, uh, C920E at that price point particularly. I'm uh, more of a fan of the Brio. I've had better experiences with the, the the color rendering there. But the big key, I think, if there's some money that you can eke out for some kind of lighting just to make sure that they're well lit with whatever webcam you send them, that's going to make the biggest difference. But uh, you'll do just fine with that 920 if it's on sale there. Yeah, the I, I don't know what the E. Um, I actually don't know what the E stands for as far as what it does. What you want to be careful of is the nine thirty was a wider angle, which did not make it better. Um, so the nine thirty was, I think, kind of a failure because of that. Uh, most people don't want to show their entire office, you know, when they're when they're doing it. Unless the nine thirty was a really good one for the for conference rooms, but the nine twenty the nine twenty will do fine. I mean, we used the nine twenty for 
years as our primary um, thing. So as 1080p, it'll be great. If you can afford a little bit more, the Brio is a huge jump up from the, the, the quality of the Brio is a huge jump up from the 920. Uh, you'll see a lot less aliasing. Um, you'll see less sharpening uh, artifacts and so on and so forth. So the, the Brio is a big jump from there. And then, of course, the next big jump is to what you're looking at, the, the Link 360. Go ahead, uh, Chris. Um, the other advantage to the Brio, and correct me if I'm wrong, is especially through Zoom, uh, I can reframe it using request remote control. Um, I think, um, I don't know if you can do that at all with a 920, but I, I know you that can. It's because you can? It's, it's, you cannot. Oh, you well, can. I mean, I think you might be able to zoom in a little bit, but it gets soft really fast because the, what the Brio is doing, it's got a 4K sensor. So it's right. when you're zooming in, you're panning and scanning inside, you're zooming in and then panning and scanning inside of that 4K image, whereas a 920 is just the 1080p image. And I'll tell you, that feature is super clutch. Uh, we, we did a, a session yesterday, and you know, one of one of the people, you know, come into the thing, and they're like this, and like, "Hi, is this okay?" You know, yeah. and uh, I was able to to zoom way in on her and and frame her up. The, the other thing, super <laughs> interesting, is I would take the speaker during prep. I'd take the speaker. Uh, what's it called? The 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 person who's talking view, uh, and I just put active the speaker. I active speaker. Sorry, I just put the framer up while they're all getting ready. Yeah, they and all just find so, their way there. They just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. That is the magic. The magic it's, of Af it's, it's, it's it's the just, Zen of Fenwick. Anybody. Hereafter, the Zenwick. Yeah. It's super fun to watch it. people just sort of fall into place. It's yeah. peer pressure. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, next question. Our next question from, comes from Kyle Hammond from the internet. How would you set up a sub 2K five person conversation for digital first YouTube, but everyone in a bar? Go ahead, Jason. Um, I hope you're going live to tape. I would do it, this would be tricky, but um, with a Theta and a mixed pre and as many good mics as you can muster. Yeah, I I would um, I think that you know the audio is going to be obviously a challenge there. Um, you know, it'd be close to two K uh, in a bar. It depends on how much you want to hear the bar, but generally, I would be tempted to use SM fifty eights. Either them holding them, talk, sitting around talking, or putting them on a desk or something like that. You can give them labs. It's going to sound horrible. You know, like there's not <laughs> like in a bar, you're just going to pick up a lot, and people do that. It just I, I and I, I admit that I don't even like going to bars with music in them because I don't like I don't like external noise. So I I have a problem with. Uh, so for me, it's intolerable. Like labs in a bar are intolerable, but some people can put up with it. Um, so you just have to decide what your listener wants and doesn't want to hear while they're talking. But it can very quickly drop into the din, especially when you got five of them. One thing that's important when you have a bunch of people, whether it's in a bar or not, is a Dugan auto mix. So having an or some version of auto mix because you want to be able to you want to be able to prioritize one mic at a time. And those SM58s will make it a lot easier to do that. And you have to train the audience a little bit. Um, to, to make that work. So they can sit around holding them or you can give them a little stand or something like that, but that'll make a big difference as far as the audio goes. As far as the video goes, uh, again, these are this is a place where a couple Link 360s will take you a long way because what you can do is you have maybe one in the center and then two on either side and you have the five kind of in that round. You can pre-program every person with those because they're little PTZs. And so you can pre-program all their settings and save the setting of where they were in their Zoom position and everything else. 
So now you're just hitting there, tap, tap, tap. And you it's not super fast because you the, the Link360 doesn't have an API and doesn't have a way to expose the, the app across, you know, open up the app multiple times to control different cameras. So it's not as good as a PTZ. But man, you would get a great little show, you know, that that's that's sitting there going back and forth. So you'd leave one on the on the person who's the moderator, one that's wide. So that what what happens is you can always go to the wide shot and let them talk for a minute while you're while the while you're taking the other one. So what I probably do is have one on the on the uh, speaker and then one that's wide, and then I only really have to control the other one. So there's like four people on one of those. Um, if they're, if, let's say you have five people, yeah, five people, you have four of them that are get kind of getting interviewed or, or the panel and you have four presets for each one of them. And then you're just tapping that. And if you have to make any major adjustments to the other ones, it would work. So I think that would be probably the thing that I, that's how I would put that together. And it probably would get you pretty close to $2,000. Uh, it, it might be a little bit more 2,500. Um, but, um, but I think that that would, that would work pretty well. Good, Chris. Um, so Kyle, I think the biggest thing about doing this is staging. So yes, the noise is, you know, good, fast, cheap. You, you don't have a whole lot of money, but if you set up in a bar where everybody is up against a wall and you don't see the bar, when you hear the bar, but don't see the bar, it's super problematic. If you set up in such a way that you're, you're tucked into the corner and your panel is facing the corner and you have the expanse of the bar back behind everybody and you see it in all the shots, you're much more likely to forgive all the extra noise and bottles and, you know, somebody yelling or th playing darts, whatever. When you see that stuff in the background, you'll be okay hearing it. In terms of cameras, I personally, I would do one wide shot and then one PTZ with five presets. And if somebody talks for too long, you go to the close-up. Otherwise, I'd just kind of hang kind of kind of wide, and you know, put I'd put like a dynamic mic in front of every every person. But see, but by staging it, by seeing the bar behind them, your mind will uh, kind of nullify all that extra noise because it makes sense that you're hearing it. And if you want to do a test, if you have access to those people, if you're doing a regular show. Do one in the bar and then do one in a quiet room and then go to your live stream and look at the average view time. Just just do that for me. I can guarantee which one will have a longer average view time. It'll be the one with, in the quiet room. The bar, the, the bar will affect, you know, having the bar behind it, having all the distractions will create cognitive load and people will drop out of your stream. So, so the, you know, so that your average, when, you, when you're measuring, I only measure... I don't measure the number of concurrent, obviously I don't measure the number of concurrent views or total views. It doesn't really matter. That's just a matter, that's a function of marketing. What I look at is average view time and sequential attendance. So how often do they come back? And, and, um, and you know, it doesn't have to come back all the time, but how often do they regularly come back and listen to something or watch something? And how long do they stay when they're there? And when you create a bunch of extraneous noise, what you find is that the number, the, the amount of time people stay is very low. <laughs> like, you know, and so they, they, and, and they don't even, this gets back into the, what we were talking about earlier. They don't, they don't notice it. They just go, oh, I'm going on. I'm going to move on to something else. They get bored and, and you're competing with all the other things they could be watching and yours has to be pretty good, you know, to keep them there. And so, uh, so the, so I think that that's the thing you want to kind of keep, keep in mind uh, is just, and, and if you, again, if you're doing a podcast, Try it and get a couple different places and look at what the average view time is. I can almost guarantee that your average view time in a quiet room will be higher than in a bar. Like I can, I mean, like I put, I'd put money on it. <laughs>
<laughs> good money that, that it'll be higher. So. Also, uh, watch some of Brian Brushwood. Is that his name? Brian Brushwood's yeah. content. He's done yeah. done a lot of stuff. You know, Shwood. like it, 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 it makes sense because he's doing like, you know, bar games and stuff in a bar. So content. some people do that. Yeah, it's but again, there's things you can do in a bar that will have people keep watching. Uh, discussing something is not one of them. <laughs> you know, so it's like if they're doing stuff in the bar, then it, it might, you know, if they're showing you how to make, how to pour your next Heineken, then then that's something that, uh, that the people might watch for a little longer. Next question. Our next question comes from Brett Bilo in Appleton, Wisconsin. Does the panel have any thoughts on this morning's announcement of Blackstone's $4.6 billion acquisition of Cvent event management software, whether this will actually benefit the planning of virtual events and webinars? Probably not. Um, you know, this is this is an investment purchase, so they're going to buy it. They're going to try to package it up and sell it again. I mean, that's what that's what Blackstone does. So you're not looking at something that is now inve- being invested in to be better. It, it's being packaged to sell. Um, and Cvent's been doing this for a while. So Cvent's been in kind of an acquisition spree uh, throughout the you know pandemic. And even before that, we had meetings with them uh, about other things. And so they, they've been kind of buying up stuff to package it for a sale uh, for maybe the last five or six years. And that's how that's, this kind of thing works. Um, but probably you're not going to see anything meaningful from Cvent now that they're owned by a company that's really just trying to package them for another uh, for investment and resale. It's not uh, it probably isn't doesn't bode well for the, for that platform. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, I mean, along those lines, Norton, the guy, the guy that invented Norton Disc Doctor, Norton Ghost, was absolutely brilliant. And you know, when he got tired of doing his thing, he sold um, he sold the rights to his software, and that's where you get Norton Antivirus and Norton LifeLock, and it just you know, it is that long, slow progression of um, you know, riding on the shoulders of genius and then just collapsing. Well, and I don't, I mean, Cvent's been kind of a packaged company for a while and, and they do a lot of things. I think the problem really is, is that they're based on the past rather than the future. And, and the thing is, is that we, you know, a lot, almost all the event companies from my perspective, almost all the platforms are, are shooting for something that isn't going to be here in 10 years or even five years. And so, uh, you know, we're not going to be doing events the way we've been doing them uh, for, for much longer because it's just not working. You know, like it's, it's not, uh, again, when you start paying attention to sequential attendance and, and average view time and things that matter about your events, you start to see trends. And those trends are not towards what these event companies are doing. You know, things like there is no reason to do, like Cvent does a really good job of building events where you have lots and lots of tracks and you have lots of people going to different places and you got to tell them when their thing is going to hear and when their thing is going to hear and all those things. And that's what, that's what Cvent does really well is, is old fashioned events that have maybe a shiny little front end on it that looks like virtual events now, but they're not, they're not grounded in, we don't need to do that anymore. You know, we're, we're no longer you know, so we're we're still a- approaching this from the past, which is what people do. But eventually, what happens is is people stop using that, and then they start moving on to something else. And so, and I think that again, if you think about an event, there's no reason to do all those tracks at one time. You could be doing all the smaller stuff again throughout the throughout a month or a year, and then you have these these bigger events. But you keep everybody in the same conversation because it's much more powerful. And I, and I didn't know I didn't didn't occur to me until I went to TED. I went to TED Africa in 2007 and having everybody in the same room the whole, for three days was life-changing. Like it was just, it was like, I I could not look at a conference the same way after I went to TED 
you know, and and it's one of the secrets that they don't talk about very much, but they, lots of short, you know, I, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a short one, 18 minutes that they worked on really hard, some five minutes that they worked on really hard. There's three or four of them, and then you get an hour and a half break to talk to people, and then you come back and do it again. And and it is so much better an experience than the schlock that we put up on a daily basis in, in events. It ruined my experience of events. You know, everything seemed normal until I saw that. And then I, as soon as I experienced it, I couldn't go back. And what virtual events allow us to do is do that at a global scale. And, but take the ones that aren't going to necessarily, that are a little bit more vertical and do them all virtually really, really well, you know, or digitally. And, and that's the thing that, that I think is, ha is going to happen. And I, and I don't think that Cvent or any of, or hop in or, Zoom events or any of these are built for that. They're built for, you know, throwing the ball to where the receiver not only not only is but was. Like they're not even throwing. They're 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 so far behind. All these event platforms are so far behind. I mean, Zoom is at the forefront of how we connect. Zoom events is just another hop in, in my opinion. Go ahead, J Jason. Yeah. It uh, okay. I'm not saying that the re that all repackagings are bad and that all repackagings fail. Um, a paradigm shift is absolutely in the cards, and it's you know again they may very well get their value out of this. That oh, doesn't necessarily mean that their end yeah. result is going to be the right thing. Blackstone is going to make money on this, you know, like like that's, they're, they're going to make a profit on it. It's a good investment for them, and it's a good deal for Cvent. Uh, whether it may, I don't think it's going to make any positive effect on our on our industry um, or any negative effect, really. To be honest, uh, next question. Our next question comes from Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. Assuming no bandwidth issues, will SRT provide a better image quality ov over RTMP? Isn't it just a transport difference? My video via SRT to vMix looks great, but that same image sent to via RTMP to our content delivery network or CDN looks bad. You should be able to get them both to look the same. The SRT is gonna be more reliable as far as how it bit. It shouldn't be looking good or bad. Uh, generally, but SRT is going to is definitely going to produce a more reliable image than RTMP. That's why people try. That's why people use it. Um, you usually give up a little bit of uh, and, and and SRT can can still be at a very low latency. You can run I think SRT down to below a second, down to half a second. Um, RTMP tends to be a little bit. Uh, it, it, RTMP can be that low latency, but it tends not to be a great experience when it is. So, but SRT is definitely going to um, uh, you know and and and. SRT can, uh, you want to look at what your transport stream actually is. What is the compression that you're using for SRT? SRT can carry many, many, many different things. So you can send all kinds of transport streams over it, the kind of video. Is it the exact, are you sending the exact H.264 over SRT that you were sending over RTMP at the same bandwidth? So those would be the questions I'd have, but they shouldn't look dramatically different, but one will be more reliable, SRT. Um, next question. Our next question comes from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. When producing spatial audio content, what are the differences between streaming slash live content and archive content in your workflow? File type, resolution, where can we post non-streaming content for iOS, Mac, Windows, Android, USDZ, Z, Z, Quest 2? I'll go ahead, Jason. 
All right, I'll at least take the first part of that. Um, if if you're doing it right, you're keeping the things that you want to be able to remix and remaster for, you know, not just this spatial audio, but the next one and the next one and the next one. And the only way to do that is really to just, you know, keep your stems, keep your originals, keep your workflow. Um, I'm not sure where USDC fits into this, but, you know, it just kind of as an overall thing, I, I think, yeah, that's the first part. Well, I mean, a big difference is you have a lot more control when you're doing it for post. So when you're doing it for a uh, an arc, not so much archive, but when you're live, what we can't do is really pass the metadata through our systems. And so live is generally a channel-based system as opposed to a uh, object-based system. So if we're using something like Atmos, um, you have, uh, you know, it's a 120 or 118 or something like that number of objects that you can move around along with the beds. And so those beds are there. I think it's 128 total um things that that can be that can be uh, managed there and so you've you've got a lot of control there that you can put into um, an atmos file uh, adm file or or otherwise and the you can't do that in live so in live you're going to be up to 16 channels you can do 916 and that's really limited to our sdi pipe, pipeline that then goes back into an encoder that can be either an eight a tem uh, 5291 or a uh, elemental and those will be re-encoded into a uh, into into an atmos file but it's just being encoded as that so that it can be then uh, acknowledged as atmos when it gets to the other side so um so those are the the workflows are pretty different on on those and, and again you can have a lot more resolution now what you can do is of course build an atmos scene you know in something like pro tools and be doing all those animations but what it's going to come out of that is is into those 16 channel up to 16 channels and typically we're doing 514 714 which is a couple less channels than that so so that is the you know those are the kind of things to think about when you're thinking about live versus uh vod uh the as far as usdz quest 2 those types of things um, those are those are things that are more complex um, as far as what you're talking about is putting objects into the 3d scene and then having them be related you know pushed back out again and that is a a lot of people in game development and others are, are working on that. It's not something that's regular. Um, what I will say is that generally spatial audio works really, really well, really, really well on Apple devices and really not so well on everything else, uh, mostly because Apple just invested a lot into it um, uh, very, uh, five or six years ago. So Apple, every Apple device made in I think the last five years has you know, support for uh, spatial audio in it. Uh, and so that is a much different situation where Windows wants to charge you, you know, everybody has to buy it themselves for like a dollar and Android doesn't, hasn't really invested heavily in it. So it's just a nightmare to, to support Windows and Android when it comes to immersive audio at, at the level. Whereas it's not that you can't do it, it's just really hard. And so when you do it on an Apple device, you just say, just use the foundation player <laughs> or just use the Apple, Apple, you know, classes and Everything just works. Uh, when you do it in, in Windows and Android, there's a lot of uh, a lot of work. Uh, next question. Our next question comes from Brody Hefner in New York, New York. What's the best way to share an illustration or screenshot that isn't a link with the Office Hours panelists in connection with a tech question? Is there a good place to drop it in Discord? Go ahead, Jason. It's not a good place to drop it in Discord. More than how is when. Do it early, and there will still be some of the panelists that are simply not going to follow the link. But that said, I mean, Photo Bucket, I would say, would be a close second to an actually legitimate website that is somehow relevant to what you're trying to show us. But even an iCloud share, yeah, I don't see why not. Yeah, one of the things that we uh, um, 
we're working on is being able to have you do that during the show. But right now, definitely look through the questions and we're, you know, the interact with us ahead of time. And we might even, uh, if you're interacting and talking to us about it ahead of time, it might work. But, uh, you know, we're still working on how do we have images be submitted while we're talking. It's a complicated process to bring it out. Um, but the best thing to do is get be part of the actual team that's producing the show. That's usually the easiest way to get it to us. As a viewer, we don't have the, the mechanics to do that very well just yet. Next question. Our next question comes from Brent, Ben Bedward in New Glarus, Wisconsin. Last year, my church asked if I could run the live stream. I said, I'll learn. Thank you for all the great conversations. This week, I'd like to learn how to set the color of my cameras using a color card. Where can I watch to see it done right? Oh, there's so many ways to do this. I guess I the, don't have a color card. Um, no, I, I have one, um, but there's not any. We're, we are it's a matter of setting it up. Uh, you know, a lot of times we, we I want to set yeah, something you need up a to, second to walk camera. through it. But this is the, um, there's a variety of different color charts that you may use. Um, this is the probably the most, this is one of the most simple ones. This is from um, D DSC Labs. Uh, and um, this is one of the ones that we use. Um, but uh, you can also use the X-Rite color chart. Um, the main thing is, is that there's a couple different ways to do it. And it depends on what the chart is. Um, so, the easiest way, as 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 Jason's starting to play with it, is uh, that you can um, do a auto white balance, and you'll get them all pretty close to where they need to be um, to 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 do that. That's not going to be perfect, and if you start cutting between them, you're going to notice changes. And what matters is the skin color. People will put up with a lot of other things, but the skin color really has to be the same. The the other ways to do the to set your cameras um, is the gray area. Gray by itself is not enough if you're if you're matching cameras because it's one it's one sample point. So that's why something like an X right is oftentimes better because you see a whole bunch of different colors and what you have to do is match those two colors together um, and or match all the colors together because you'll notice that it now looks good in gray and it looks good in red but it doesn't look good in yellow and so you have to figure out what those things are between each one. Um, the advantage of a full-on, I don't, it's a little outside of my reach, but a full-on DSC Labs uh, chroma Devon chart is, is that it has a set of squares that go around it and they go through your vector scope. <laughs> you know, like they will just, so you, you can, they'll, you can literally just put the dots into the dots and it'll, it'll be correct for every camera. So that is one way that if you have those controls on the camera, you can get there. One of the things that we've been experimenting with is using Resolve to use LUTs and either in a box that's in between or on directly on the camera. And to do that, what we have to do is, is shoot that chart under exactly the same lighting and exactly the same brightness, and then bring them in to resolve, build LUTs and put them back on the cameras. Um, and it's it works sometimes and not always, and we're trying to make it more reliable and we haven't solved that completely yet. Uh, next question. Our next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. In an article about remote kits, it was said that small crews have been useful for a while, but there will always be reasons to have big crews. Even if there are practical reasons, will the accountants still put pressure on crew sizes? There's always going to be events that have big crews. I mean, we have crews. I mean, the crew just for this show is pretty big. <laughs> but, but it's, you know, the what happens is, is that people... One, I mean, obviously, people want to spend no dollars on on events. That's, I mean, a, a C, every CFO wants to spend ten dollars on every event, but that's not how you. If if you start paying attention again to average view time and sequential attendance, you stop doing that because the problem really is when you build cheap events, people stop coming, and when they stop coming, getting them back is super expensive because they've already decided that your events aren't very good. You know, and and so the uh, and once they've decided that, wow, so hard to get them back over the hump. Go ahead, Jason. 
This reminds me of the trade shows and my heart always goes out to them. The companies that have really smart people there, you know what I'm talking about? But mm -hmm. they had like, they've never been to a trade show. They don't even have like duvetine around their table. They just right. like, they added a piece of poster board. They're just sitting there going, why is no one engaging with me? Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's just at some point there's a cost to failure and, and that's what people oftentimes don't, they don't calculate that cost when they calculate how much they're spending on the event. Go ahead, John. We had 23 guys on the ground at the dry lake bed for OH space and then another 15 remotely. So we had a yeah. giant crew. Yeah, exactly. Next question. Brett Below from... Bilal from Appleton, Wisconsin is back with our next question. Is it normal for an A10 Mini Pro to have a high-pitched whine for the first few minutes after being plugged in? It functions just fine, but the whine occurs every time it powers up from a cold start or restarting warm. Go, Jason. The fans in the, um, the A10 Mini Pros aren't great. My guess is that it's a plastic bearing. Um, you'd void your warranty, but um, you might look at uh, just, you know, turning down the brightness of your buttons and trying to figure out how to add a little bit of an incline to, um, to the switcher. And if that doesn't work, then yeah, crack it open and, um, and get a better fan. I will say the first thing I do with an, if I get a new ATEM Mini is to turn down the buttons, mostly because I don't like to look at them so bright, but also it dramatically changes the heat <laughs> of that of that of that switcher next question our next question comes from paul terry wallace in austin texas on my mac m1 which app should have full disk full disk access fda is included under the privacy and security menu in system settings along with focus accessibility automation app management analytics etc good keely uh, every application that requests it. When you install an application, it will give you a prompt. Please grant full disk, uh, full disk access for these things. I wouldn't go through and grant access to apps that haven't asked for it. You will see those listed. The toggle will be off. Just leave it there. And if it's needed, the app will tell you. Go, Jason. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Next question. Our next question comes from Fred Eric Eckert from Bad Herrenbalb in Germany. Black Magic Design has a list of supported USB devices for recording out of a BMD6K, and there's a link in the question. Considering the reliability of OWC, they're surprisingly not listed. What drives are you using for mission-critical shoots? Go, Jason. Um, OWC. And Craig, more than once in one of his live streams, has said, look, there are plenty of drives out there that work. We just happen to be, you know, sampling the ones that we're sampling, and we only have so much time before we do these updates. So at the end of the day, you shouldn't be taking anything on a shoot that you don't personally know can handle what, um, you know, what you're throwing at it. And yeah, the list is a starting point in the same way that there are lots of lenses, uh, micro four thirds that fit on the camera, but um, aren't listed in the manual as exactly supported in exactly the right way. Um, I like OWC and um, <laughs> check the demo from, from when Larry came on. It was pretty great. Yeah. And I have, I have one of the little OSB, OS, OWC uh, drives. I haven't, I, I tested it like for the minute it's not going over 550 megs a second but uh, on my tests but it should still work on the camera and should just pop out I use the T5s mostly because they fit into the case that the, the camera comes with so the T5 slides into the case that's a and, and it works and so I've used the T5 mostly for the bigger things that we do we've used these sand disks here because they're fast enough to handle as much as the that that we can put out um, and they're easy to and then I build ones from NVMEs these are a Neos, a Neos I wonder if you got one of the older firmware versions 
I don't know. I'll have to check it out. Anyway, but it, it doesn't, I haven't been able to get it. it. It was brand new, like a week before, right before we did it. I mean, anyway. I had to send mine back oh, okay. um, in order to get it. a firmware update. So I don't, I'm not sure if they pushed it yet. Yeah. Um, NAB. Yep. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is back with this. The U-Perfect 17-inch 4K portable monitor has been frequently and positively discussed here, but this video mentions that macOS has issues detecting it as a high DPI-compatible display. Has anyone else had those issues? And there's a YouTube link. Yeah, go Jason real quick. Nope. You have it or you haven't had the issues? No, I haven't had the issues at all. Okay, oh, there you go. Uh, next question. Fred Eric is back with this question. How do you set up your room when color grading? The biggest thing for your room to be color graded is to paint it gray. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it's, you want a gray, you want everything to be around you as neutral as possible. You don't want a lot of colors. Uh, they're going, you need to be in there for a little while to let your eyes settle. Uh, and you want to make sure that, that you're able to look at your monitor. And we'll, we should probably get Charles to come back and talk about it. But I think that you'll find that anybody that you walk in and is doing any kind of color grading immediately moves to a gray room. In fact, I just paint all my rooms gray. I haven't painted this one gray because I don't completely own the house. <laughs> so, but but all, my house, all my offices have been gray for the last 20 years. I, just, I give them literally an 18% gray card and I say just match that color. And then the painter does whatever they do and they get close. Uh, next question. Our next question is from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. The Mac Mini M1 only has one HDMI port. What are ways to add more than one HDMI port? Go, Jason. Uh, you can get a dock that'll do it. You can get a passive cable that will do it, depending upon the input of your monitor. You can get a hub that will do it. Um, or you can just, you know, sacrifice another one of your Thunderbolt ports and, and you know, convert it basically any way you can think of. Yeah, go ahead. Chris? Yeah, Paul, the the bigger issue is not <clears throat> the ports, but the fact that the M1s have uh, an art of, uh, what I would call an artificial limitation to be able to support two displays. So everything Jason said, yes, but you're only going to be able to add one more display on an HDMI uh, output. Yeah, and I just use this Uni cable, USB-C on one side and HDMI on the other. It works great. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael is back. In the video power of power cabling for a Ramstein Stadium concert, it was very neatly laid out despite being a massive amount of cable. What is the secret to this kind of cable management? Drawings. <laughs> drawings. Like drawings are the, are the key, is knowing exactly where all those cables are going to go, doing it often enough that you understand exactly what it's going to look like, uh, but following the drawings and knowing exactly which ones have to go where to get to where they need to go. Uh, next question. It's Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Compare and contrast Zoom chat with Mukana, including the projections for the next-gen Zoom chat. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Barring the five-paragraph essay that would involve comparison and contrast, um, I've never used Zoom chat because I prefer iMessage and Mukana. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, I have to admit, I, I'm very focused on the video transports that Zoom provides, and I don't really pay much attention to all the other things other than getting people in and out of those, those video things. So I, I have to admit that my interest in, in those are very 
vertical. And part of, part of it's because I have more control over our chat. You know, we can get things changed if we need to. Um, and it's integrated into a larger system that allows us to do a lot of things that we could never do. If I have to, if I do it in Zoom chat, I have to figure out how I interface with that all the time. And that's an external system and it means more work <laughs> for us. So um, so I, I, I'm not that, uh, uh, I don't think you'll see us using it anytime soon, I guess. is And, you know, it's, it's a, uh, you know, now I have to, you know, we, we're working on something that incorporates that. And now I have to figure out the permissions. And now I have to figure out the, you know, all the little bits and pieces. And I have to figure out how to get it in and out. And and to me, it's just easier to have my own. <laughs> so, so anyway, so that's, so I think that's how I would compare and uh, contrast it. All right, we are jumping to our second hour. And I'm super excited. I have a friend of mine. He's, he's here. Hey, hey, Alan, can you, can you uh, hear us okay? Yep, there you go. There you go. You unmute me. Yeah. Hello, how you doing? Hey, good to see you. Alan and I have known, I don't know, it's been close to 20 years, I think, that, yeah. that we've known each other. Um, and uh, and Alan is one of the best CG artists I've ever worked with. Um, and uh, just an incredible, I mean, there's so many incredible images that I've that he's actually made for things that I'm working on, things that he's made for a lot of other people. If you go to the site, I think we put it in the in the links there. Uh, it's just an incredible amount of uh, of incredible production quality. And it's not just that it's complex. It's in fact, it's not when it, when you look at it on the outside, it, it's not that what Alan does is complex. It's that it's the fine detail that that you see there that makes it look real, that makes it look amazing you know and i think that uh that's the thing that miss that most cg artists are missing is is that is that really you know incredible sheen that anytime i have to do something that's really realistic i always you know alan gets an gets a a ping a text or an email going hey are you available (laughs) can i can i can i have you work on something for me uh and um and so so it just just really incredible cg artist and i wanted to bring him on and have us all meet him but also um uh, you know, really figure out how he got there um, and and how he, you know, um, really, you know, because it's more than just learning how to use a, a, a 3D software. So, Alan, can you tell us a little bit about where you started? Because you didn't start in computer graphics, right? I mean, you didn't start in, in 3D graphics. I didn't start in 3D, no. And thank you for that amazing intro. I really appreciate it. I, I call that 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 extra finesse that you're talking about, where you just get you're obsessing over every pixel and that highlight and the detail and the materials and whatnot. So my background actually comes in. I was initially pra- trained in uh, applied color theory for color correction and lithography. What so does that mean? I go I go way back. I yeah. go way so back. When was to this? Before. This is this is the eighties, the nineties, the late eighties. Yeah, right. I got a four year apprenticeship right out of high school, um, operating what was called. I know it sounds weird, but it was called a hell a hell combi system. It was a color correction system coming out of Germany. It was one of the only systems that can actually handle color corrections and things in uh, digital format. You know, we had the big three hundred megabyte packs that were about this big around and this tall and the huge drives, right? So, and what did you? Uh, what were the controls like? I mean, when you when you use something like that? Oh, it was crazy. I remember walking into my first job, and actually, it was a temperature controlled room that had all the drives, and I saw my first combi system. It seems so amateur by today's. I mean, like. It, it it's amazing what we do by today's standard, but just imagine a scenario where you've never seen a high resolution photo on a computer screen, right? And I walked into my first like digital studio and I saw 
we were they were retouching, doing retouching, basically what we do in Photoshop, but right. it was for a cosmopolitan type of uh, piece, a fashion design type of piece. And I saw a high resolution photo, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's amazing what you can do. And we were doing uh, this was like the state of the art for the time. Uh, we would do color correction, and basically, I did um, not really any repainting, just color correction, right? It was just. It was retouching. It was retouching. retouching. It was basically, you know, making making photos look beautiful, making ads look beautiful. So when you look through those magazines, you want to see the products that that they have, right? It was right. it was taking photography and making it look stunning for for ad work. So how do that, you that, think that's my background? That's where it all started. How do you think that start where you are affects to your work today? Well, that's where I got that obsession over detail yeah that's right. where that's where it came from to where uh you know you have to go in for example and people don't really think too much about this i don't i don't think but when you're looking at advertising industry for for fashion or for product or for lifestyle it's not a, just about getting you know something that looks appealing you also have to make it look accurate to the product you have to dial in and color correct the gene color for example that fashion designers work to get just right and you know the the clothing lines they want they want the color exactly right and when you're actually creating for press for an actual litho lithography press when you have control over minutiae details one two three percent color corrections right you can dial in color precisely and art directors and advertisers, they want to you take advantage of that and get the skin tones precise, get the get the the details and the color absolutely correct. And right. so a lot of what we were doing is just finessing and finessing and getting absolute accuracy to real world products in addition to aesthetics, right? I think that's where it came from. And and then Photoshop started in the early '90s, right? Mm -hmm. It started creeping up. How as as an operator that was working on this big, how did you feel about Photoshop when it when it began? When you started, to I see was it? an embracer of technology. I mean, I was all I was all about it. I had a Macintosh when the Mac came out. I actually when I, <laughs> my uncle worked for Apple and he brought a Macintosh to my to my house. And I remember Mac Paint. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> we're yeah. going way back, right? But I actually started painting little pictures with fat bits and you know black and white little dots and creating halftone images with black and white so uh but even before photoshop i was a big advocate of playing around with the mac and then once photoshop came out um you know i could see i could see how that was just gonna again i was looking at a three well actually it was it was about a million dollar system the combi system that we would work right. the retouching system I'm like well this system I, I could see that it was going to come in pretty quick and be able to take over what the di the digital system could do, right? Right, right. How did you um, How did you make the conversion from the combi system to the to the? That's how my That's how my career kind of really took off because I was so interested in the Mac. That's because I was so interested in what this technology could do. Uh, I was at the forefront of combining old tech with new tech, meaning. Uh, scanners. We had these massive drum scanners, very high tech scanners, in order to get film, you know, transparencies. And what's a drum scanner in. compared to a flat? Most of us are used to flatbeds. I mean, I, what's funny is 
most people don't even know what a scanner is today. I mean, I you know, very rarely see people take pictures cool. with their iPhone and they're like, okay, I got a, I got an image, but, uh, but there's flatbeds and drums. And what, how did the drum work? It was crazy. You know, when you, when, when you, I saw my bio and I saw 30 years worth of experience, I'm like, am I that old? And now, and now this conversation <laughs> like, is making me sound like so old. Back when we were a kid, we had to back in my day, right? Yeah. It's crazy. Um, yeah. Anyway, drum scanner. Uh, the first scanner I ever w- worked in took up the size. It was about twenty feet long. Mm-hmm. It was about six feet high, and it did both. It was a. It was. It was a again a very very high tech thing. Came from Germany. It was uh, something. It was one of the only ways of actually getting g- something from a film transparency mm-hmm. into the computer. You had to do right. a drum scan. It's a high resolution drum scanner, and basically. You mounted. It was a very pristine process where you had to clean the transparency. You had to add oil. You had to put a, a, a mylar over it, and then the, the scanner would just spin super, super, super fast, and then and then slowly record the data at right. super high resolution. That's the way what we're doing with our digital cameras now, just instantly at like right. fifty megapixels, was an excruciatingly detailed process with these massive computers back in the day. So, now, so yeah, did, that's what that's what it is. When did you start using Photoshop? Like, when did it start becoming part of your production? It was, uh, I'd probably say, about '93 before mm-hmm. it was really kind of powerful enough. And it, we could only use it for lower res photos, like if you had a thirty by forty movie poster or something like that, really high res. Right. It, it just couldn't handle the the size, but we. Right. Uh, we, 93 we is about when they had when we got layers, right? I think that was like 2.5 or 2. That was a little later. I remember was layers. Like, I was excited about layers. Yeah, I remember layers. <laughs> like I know all of you think about that. We were like layers. We can layers. do layers, you know. And oh, it was it was very layers were very exciting to, <laughs> for a lot of us. Yeah, but that's that's what I used to do. Uh, that's one of my first jobs was figuring how to get getting back to the scanner thing, trying to get it from that scanner in from that proprietary data format. Right into a Macintosh system, we had to actually develop what was called a scan link, and we had some tech people out there literally writing the software to transfer from from this proprietary format onto the Mac side. And, and once when, we developed a scan link, that's when we were able to actually combine the high resolution photos from uh, from scanning into the Macintosh format. So, and when you uh, when did you stop? When, when was the last time you used the the big the big the big machine? Oh, jeez. Well, the big the big scanner became a smaller scanner, about a third of the size. About you know a decade later, we were still using them. And then I think the last time I've seen a drum scanner was probably yeah fifteen eighteen yeah. years ago. Well, so and, and then and then as far as when when were you a hundred percent Photoshop? You know, hundred percent Photoshop. Yeah. Um, probably ninety six. Yeah, right around ninety six, ninety eight, right around there. Not sure if you remember the 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 Mac thirty. Is it? We called it the Dash thirty FX. Uh-huh. It was the first computer that was powerful enough to handle the the full resolution. 
So right. whenever that came out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And that was probably, yeah, 96 or so. Uh, yeah. I know that, you know, for me, you know, we started with Photoshop and it was like these high techs operators are always like, oh, these kids with the, you know, that are getting paid minimum wage and, and they're using Photoshop. And I was one of those kids, um, you know, doing, you know, making that, yeah. making that happen, you know. And and so now, so then most of your work was Photoshop. Was it still in, in ad? ad work were, were you doing pretty much the same thing in the 90s but just with a different set yeah of i was doing the same thing uh we all have to start somewhere my first job was mostly doing again i did a little bit of everything but i was mostly doing <laughs> it was very glamorous i was outlining grapes for newspaper ads you know it was it started off just the bread and butter stuff of the kind of newspaper clippings that you would get every day right um and then you know, I just progressed up the ranks and next thing you know, I'm doing lifestyle and beauty retouching. And then next thing you know, I'm working, you know, the, Wait, some of the top end accounts in the world. So when you start, when you started doing, when you move from grapes to the highest level of production, what do you think, why do you think you did that when a lot of people didn't? Like, what do you think you were doing differently or how were you approaching it? that wasn't like everyone else around you? Because there's a lot of people using Photoshop um, at that time and you somehow ended up at the top of the heap. But what do you think is, what do you think is different about your approach that had you get there as opposed to a lot of other people around you? And that's a good question. Um, first of all, it was my training. The, when, when the technology is available to so many people, but without necessarily the training to know what to look for and how to handle it and, and how to use it. So the fact that I had an official apprenticeship, a four-year apprenticeship in applied color theory, that was a big deal. They they teach you how to see. So it's a combination of, and I'm sure most people know, you know, the people that have the eye, they naturally have the eye of what they're looking for. They know they they know how to see. And then my training put me over the top, right? So uh, it was a combination of the formal background with the natural talent and then just the experience, you know, the experience over the years. So, right. And uh, then in the, I, I think we met when you were moving to 3D. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's how we met. That's how we you, met. You, 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 you had, had your visual effects course. Yeah. Yeah. So this was part of Pixelcore, and I don't know exactly when. Two thousand three, two thousand. I think we were doing some Moto classes um, that were. Or did you come to the visual effects conference first, or did you come to? I don't know. I when. came to your visual effects boot camp. So, and, and right. this is a, originally how we met because um, I, I've always been kind of at the forefront. You know, always what, what's next in tech? Mm -hmm. What's next? What's next? What's coming out? And I saw, you know, I was working with traditional workflows. I was working with uh, photography, retouching, video, editing, you know. And I saw the potential for 3D rendering and I saw the potential for visual effects. You remember, you know, I, I remember seeing when, uh, you know, your background with this, when visual effects went from traditional to digital, right? right. When all of a sudden the Jurassic Park era where the dinosaurs were now digital instead of animatronic and whatnot. So that whole era came out and I kind of saw the writing on the wall. I'm like, well, this is going to be applicable to my industry and I need to learn it. And your name came up that, and your background was actually kind of similar that you, you did a lot of similar things. Anyway, you had this visual effects boot camp, and that's where I, I first came to your boot camp. 
to learn visual effects. You're the one who taught me the visual effects. <laughs> I got you off the ground anyway. The, um, the, uh, but, and then, uh, so then, and I think you started with Moto, is that right? Moto? No. Oh, really? No. Actually, okay. I started with Maya. Okay. Well, Maya's brick, you know, Maya's like a brick wall in terms of a learning curve. I, I, I saw the writing on the wall again. I, I, I'm overusing this term, but I, mm -hmm. I saw the the future. I saw the potential, I should say, right of of what 3D could potentially do. And I just started doing my own digging in terms of okay, what can I learn? And then right. I heard, oh, okay, 3D is it's this this visual effect shot was done in Maya. Maya was kind of all the rage at that point. Right. Um, it was before it was even Maya. Right. Right. Um, right. So. But that's what I started trying to learn. And honestly, it was my head just exploded in terms of um, this isn't something a single artist can do. <laughs> well, and that, I mean, the, the the big thing there was that, you know, of course, what Alias wanted, what Alias Wavefront wanted was they they combined and they want what they wanted was to take Soft Homage away. And they wanted to replace Soft Homage at ILM. And so they asked they just said, what do you want? They just took Dr. ILM. Well, ILM wants something that works in a huge pipeline mm -hmm. and they want something that they can, they can um, adjust and change and improve on their own. They, don't, they just want them to work on a core that is highly scalable and highly extensible because they're a big company with 1,200 artists. And so Maya was built for that. Like it was built to be this, this pipeline engine that you, yeah. can, you can clomp all those things on. But as an individual artist, not... It's meant much. for a pipeline, right? It's yep. meant for when you have those kind of resources and you have dedicated professionals to each end of the product pipeline. But coming from as an individual artist yeah. myself, I'm like, I'm used to what I can do, what I can create with my own hands. Um, right. So my my initial training was with Maya, but I quickly realized, well, this takes a production team of a massive amount of people. What happens when you have a small production team of right. you know 10 or 15 artists and, and you need to produce something of the caliber that my clients are, are, are used to. Um, uh, and it's, so for a while I was a bit like, well, it's still a ways off and I, I'm not sure exactly how we're going to get there yet. But when Moto came on the scene, that was kind of a big breakthrough from empowering the artist. Right. Like I picked up Moto. First of all, I saw what the renders were doing and I was amazed by it. And I, I just picked it up. I'm like, and within, you know, a month of playing around with it, I was producing renders that were commercially viable. That I can right. show to the clients, my clients, and say, "Hey, look, we can we can produce something here with a small team. It doesn't take a, you know." And did it? And it? And did you see as you built that the three D work? Did you see that your pre press or your or your print work or two D work affect? How did it affect your three D work? I didn't even realize what was really happening. Um, I. The skills that I had attained through however long I had been doing it were just innate in me. I just, I had, it, it was so a part of me to get that finesse because that's right. what I'd done for so long that when I picked up 3D, that part was intuitive for me. And that was actually one of the discouraging parts. I'm like, before, I, I can't get the finesse out of it that I want. I'm too busy battling the technology to try to get something usable, get the tech, get it rendered in a way that is, again, that is going to satisfy the needs of this type of clientele. So it, that part just kind of happened just because my background was, it was right. so ingrained in my nature to, to look at things that closely. Yeah. It's funny. We, we had a lot of, uh, 
folks come through PixelCore in those early days, um, and you came in, Michael Van Arsdale, other folks that we worked with that did a lot of pre-press. Um, and what was interesting was is that, like we, I, I, we were talking in the first hour, that I like to take audio people and teach them video, not video people and teach them audio. In the same way, I really like to take pre-press folks, folks that come from high-end print and high-end 2D, I found that they were the most successful at doing high-end 3D because they, and it wasn't because of the skill set. It was because, as you mentioned before, their eye. Their eye was like little things bothered them, <laughs> you know, like little, yeah. like little, like little edge issues that the 3D artists will go, oh, that looks great. And a, and a, and a pre-press person would be like, whoa, that is not usable. Like, you know, and, and, you know, you mm -hmm. can't have these edges and you can't have this. And they know what it should look like when it's a picture of a physical item because they've worked on those. And they're used to working at a pixel level. And it made them just drive those tools way harder because they yeah. were looking for something that, that was there. But it took a lot to, to dig out of it. That was actually, and you bring up a perfect point, and that's that's one of the biggest challenges I had when I moved more in from production into a director role, right? How do right. I get artists that, when the, when the industry almost became the victim of our own success, we actually started doing much, much more in CG, uh, replacing traditional workflows, replacing photography, replacing video with CG. All right, now we need to find the artists and the people, even the ones that were coming out of these schools, even the ones that were credentialed in 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 with some pretty good credentials, didn't necessarily have that subtlety you were talking about, right? Yep. So it was it was something we had to kind of train into right. our artists the same way I was trained way back in the day. So so you get somebody with the experience, you get somebody that has the you know almost the unrefined talent if you will and you learn and you teach them to look further look further look further like separate this out in your mind you know and and a lot of it is when you're working with someone that is you know for as an artist that when i was coming up to speed i definitely uh, didn't have that eye immediately and had to like listen to my supervisor you know and i had the advantage of my supervisor was a guy named John Knoll. And so he would come in and... <laughs> just, just John Knoll. Never heard of him. <laughs> Never exactly. heard of him. So, so he would, and what he would do is he would um, come in and uh, look at my, you know, visual effect shot. And he would go, this needs to change. See this thing here that isn't working. This isn't working. And then the game that I played every day was to, was to write down what I thought John wasn't going to like about the shot. And then I would give him the list of this is what I don't think is working in the shot. And he'd go, yeah, 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 don't worry about that one, but here's three other ones that 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 you didn't see. And then the next day I would try to, and every day I would play this game of trying to like guess what John was gonna pull out and what he was going to, you know, point out to me. And then my eye just kept on, you know, paying attention to all those little things until, you know, until the list was pretty much the same every time. Like I knew what the things were that needed to be fixed. And then I just got the shots done. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I didn't, didn't need yeah. as much input. But the, um, uh, as you, as you moved, uh, as you move through that, what are the kind of things that you've worked on in the last, and I don't know if you have stuff to, do you, do you have any images you can show us? I don't know what you can. I just kind of pointed to the website. I don't know if I want to pull anything necessarily. You know, a YouTube stream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But my, you can go to my website. It's yeah. just ahawks.com. I'm pretty sure it's in the bio or portfolio section. So, uh, I would just, I don't, I don't know that it will share cleanly. The video will necessarily share well, but I would just encourage people to go check it out. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would highly recommend that for folks. And and the you know the so you've done a lot of different things over the last decade, right? I mean, over the last well, the last two decades, almost fifteen years. Uh, what yeah, are the, just, what have been just the, so the you know experience? too that that website's actually. I mean, artists always say this. I need to update my reel, but uh, it is. <laughs> Right? I, I I rarely have a, 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 a I rarely have a business card to hand out because I'm always like I'm too busy doing this that, that to, you yeah, know to, to, exactly. to get business cards you know people I have two reasons number one I'm busy and number two a lot of the stuff I've been working on is NDA so it, it's it's right. it's hard to be able to share new things uh, with some specific clients I actually have a story maybe I'll share it with you the last couple of years things have gotten completely different. Um, uh, I haven't done a, a, a whole lot in the last couple of years. I, mm-hmm. Do you want? Do you want? Can I share a story yeah, with you? Absolutely. It's like a pre and post COVID situation, right? So uh, I'm I've been out of San Francisco Bay Area working there for 20 years um, right. since uh, late late 90s, right? And and now I'm in Houston. And what happened was just pre COVID, I had a director job that had. I'm going to keep names out of it, but I had a director job, um, CGI director. They had three facilities. They had one in Sunnyvale, one in Houston, one in uh, Austin. And they needed me to be a CG director in Houston. And so I made plans, sold my house, come out here, relocate. And next thing you know, uh, this, this COVID thing hit. And my my the owner of the business lost his major client that he's had for 20 years, got spooked by COVID, mm-hmm. and just shut his business down. So I'm right. just sitting out here, and I'm <laughs> suddenly in Houston without. I'm without, in Houston, right? You know, and and homeless, like kind of orphaned out here, right? And I thought, you know, I'm going to take a bit of a sabbatical. You know, I just mm-hmm. I you Alex, you know how hard we've been working. I've yeah. been it's it's just been a, a crazy run, and I thought, you know. Maybe I'll just take a little bit of break. I took a little bit of a sabbatical, yeah. kind of a breather, so to speak. I just put a few feelers out, letting people know, hey, you know, I'm kind of open if you need anything. Turned out not to be as much of a sabbatical as I planned on because people <laughs> reach out and I stay busy. But right, um, and it, and it actually turned into something where this this work from home situation actually turned into a bit of a thing, you know, where right. uh, and I and I kind of fell in love with it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right. It's a perfect have. industry to work from home on, right? No, absolutely. So, what are you working on right now? Right now, um, mostly. I don't know if I can talk about it. I can say I'm working on high tech products. How's that? <laughs> Visualization <laughs> for high tech products. That's perfect. High tech, high tech imaging products. Um, and I'm teaching. I still teach from Academy of Art at or at Academy of Art. I just teach remotely. So. Um, but that's what I'm doing now. And, and, and again, a bit of a story for you. I want to yeah. share this. You got to yeah. let me share this because yeah, you, your recent text kind of woke me up. So I, I actually, again, a bit of a sabbatical. I'm teaching a little bit. I'm doing some contract work, but I genuinely took a couple of months off where I'm just like nothing. I'm just going to breathe for a little bit, taking some time off. And your text is the one that woke me up and said, Hey, have you played around with mid journey? <laughs> I was always going like, what is, what is that one thing? I'm like, journey, yeah. uh-oh, what's mid-journey? And, I, and yeah. I'd heard of mid-journey and actually right. way back, a ways back, I played around with it. Uh-huh. Um, but I logged in, I'm like, okay, what is it? I logged in and I felt like I got up and just left. I felt like I just, did I just time lapse into the future 10 years? Right. I was so 
blown away by what I just saw. And it was both horrifying and inspiring <laughs> at the same time. Right. I didn't know what to do with it. Right. right. And, and I was just thinking, uh, what, you know, we we just we just talked about how I'm always kind of staying ahead, staying on top mm-hmm. of the tech, staying ahead of the curve, and now I just get blindsided by this right. tech, and I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to make of it. I'm looking at the mix between horror and excitement, not knowing what to make of it, and I'm thinking I step away for two months, and I come back, and now what am I supposed to do with this? So. Well, and it's, you know, I think that it's still, you know, we're still in early days. You know, I, I, I think about it a lot. I, I have Midjourney open almost all the time during the day because I'm working on these presentations. And when I, when I work on the presentations, I, I am, uh, all my images in, almost all my images in my presentations are all Midjourney. And I've gotten really good at asking for something over a plain white background so that I can key it out and so there on and so go. forth. And, and so I do this all, I mean, I'm just sitting there just churning through things and, and, but it is, it, it it's one of those things that, at first, I'm like, wow, I had to give it like 40 prompts to get what I wanted. But then I remember how long it would have taken me to build that object. Like, you know, like, like how long would it take me to like, like 40, it's doing all the work while I'm doing something else. Like I just give it a bunch of things and tell it to do something. And then I go back to what I'm doing and I come back. Now, if I needed something specific, I would still need to call you. I would need to have somebody else do something, you know, like it's not, it's kind of like a crazy cousin that kind of can do great art that you have to figure out how to talk to them. You, know, like, you have like, to figure like, out how like, to talk. You're like, oh, that's not exactly what I meant. It's like, how about this? And, 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 and like, just like, there's a crazy cousin, like on drugs, you know, on, on, on LSD that, that it'll is like, give you whatever you ask for, just not well, necessarily in the way you ask for it. Like, right. How about this? <laughs> you know, and you're like, no, not that. And you know, like, okay, okay, okay. What else? You know, and, and, and so it's, but, um, but I do think that, um, I think that it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what, what happens, and and I think that the other thing that I'm really interested, in, we've talked about a little bit, is the concept of of where we're going with uh, you know real time 3D, you know USDZ, uh, those types, you know Unreal. Have you played with those uh, any of those things very much? I played around with them based on you know mm-hmm. we've had some discussions about that, and yeah. you know I'm it's hard to stay up on everything to be honest <laughs> with you. There's just just so <laughs> many directions things are going. Um, yeah. I'm. I, again, I kind of pride myself on always being on top of tech, and now I'm like, either I'm getting old or this is accelerating too fast. I'm not, I'm not quite sure which is happening, but I'm just trying to keep up. And based on, you remember, I mean, I was kind of emotional with you. I'm like, Alex, I don't know what to do with this. What am I supposed yeah, I know. to do I, I with think, this, right? Alan was very, like, distraught at first. Was he was distraught. just like, I might as well just quit. I, you know, I think he was he was thinking about carpentry. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, maybe I'm just going to go into carpentry, something AI can't do yet. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then, I, then and then we had a conversation, and, and then I, of course, I dig in. And then I once I start understanding the technology and because of my background, it kind of makes sense. I realize what it's good for. We realize right. what it's not. Next thing you know, I'm like, it's like I have a superpower because I have, I, as long as you learn how to talk its language, yeah, uh, you, you can use it. It's great brainstorming tool. And it's great for, you know, like you said, just learning what it's good for, what it's not, and how to use it to empower the creative process, you know, and push it forward. But, and where, <clears throat> where does my role fall in as a director? Where does my role fall in as an artist? That's still what I'm figuring out. But one thing for sure is I see its potential. And yeah. I couldn't, I, again, I was just, I was, once I began to understand it, I became drawn into it. And, and then I started seeing it for its potential rather than just kind of 
being scared of it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, good, Chris. Is that a little too honest for me to admit? No, I'm like, no, I was good. scared. I no, was no, scared. I think, I think really a good. lot of artists, a lot of artists were scared. Like it wasn't like people who do that. Yeah. Alan, have you seen a documentary called Press Pause Play? I have not. Came out about 11 years ago. And when you were just talking about Mid Journey, where you said, I was simultaneously excited and, and frightened. There's a soundbite. And the, the documentary is about the advent of um, digital influence on the music industry, primarily, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually, not entirely. A lot of things. But... Um, there's a soundbite from Moby in the beginning. And he said, you were absolutely channeling Moby because he was talking about how with all of this um, easily accessible tools that um, he was simultaneously excited, but also frightened and not knowing where the future was going to go. Super interesting. I mean, a lot of times what we see in our industry as a whole are fractals of what has happened in the past. And as you know, some of us get older, we can go back and go, Oh yeah, this is like, Oh eight. And, uh, 96 was a lot like this. And 88 was very similar, actually. Like you, you can go back and you can see where things were changing. But, um, I put a link to it in the, uh, show chat, Alex, I'll get it to you. It's, it's on Vimeo. And, and I will tell you just literally just watching up until the tight, the, the end of the title sequence, super powerful yeah. super amazing it's it's fascinating and and very similar to what we're experiencing now let's go to let's uh, jump into the questions yes our first question alan for you is from john snyder in reno nevada what is your experience with generative ai and how will it impact your future work so i think we talked a little bit about your experience but how do you see it you using it in your day-to-day well it depends um, in my actual That's production. the most popular phrase in our entire community. It, 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 Every it really, single answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, this is all off the cuff discussion based on, mm-hmm. again, I, I dove into this. I went from absolute being blindsided to, of course, I'm like hyper obsessive and I dive into it and I figure it out. I've only got a couple of months of hands on with it, but I have done some, my brain is trying to process, okay, where does this fit in in the creative pipeline? What can I do with this? Um, in in my industry, doesn't really affect much. Doesn't affect much because it's not micro directable. You cannot really do anywhere near the kind of fat of uh, 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 finesse that I'm used to. Uh, I can't take the real world products and 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 it. So it doesn't really affect my current workflow. Right. But from a creative, from a brainstorming standpoint, if we have a creative pitch to make to a client. And we're trying to come up with some ideas again. It's 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 basically Google imaging on you know the same way you would put a vision board together. Yeah. Now you have a completely new source of visuals, and depending on your ability to prompt, you can get some you can get those creative juices flowing. You can get those ideas flowing. So I'm seeing it in the front end of the creative pipeline as a visualization tool and a creative for creative pitches on the back end of the pipeline, at least currently. Um, not so much, you know. All right. Next question. Our next question comes from Dave Trotman in Edmonton, Alberta. How much would you attribute your success to luck or to hard work? That's a really good question. Um, both. I think it takes a little bit of both. I mean, I did get, I really stumbled right out of high school on what was a, 
considered a highly coveted position, like I said, in applied color theory for your apprenticeship right out of high school was kind of it stumbled in my lap. Um, I but I but I had to test for it and I had to qualify for it. And and once I once I stumbled on that, I just I worked my tail off, but I it was those opportunities came at the right time. I'm grateful for them that those came in. So I think it's a combination of both. I could probably think of a handful of circumstances throughout my career where it was absolute luck or a connection or something that just came in uh, that was the right time and the right circumstances. But then I dive in and I work my tail off. So That's, that makes a big difference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Go ahead, Jason. <laughs> Um, I find that luck, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that this was a second hour question. I find that luck only works or works best when you're ready for it. So yeah, well, of course they, it's both. I guess they, they often say that luck is when opportunity meets preparation and preparation meets opportunity, you know, and you and, say that Alex, <laughs> yeah. but the, but the, um, I think that, yeah, it's, it's interesting what we see a lot are there's a lot of opportunity floating around all the time and it's just people a willing to able to see it and b willing to do the work that it takes to make it happen. You know, and I think a lot of things just die on the vine because people aren't willing to put the work in. Um, next question. Our next question comes from panelist Jason Beish in Albuquerque, New Mexico. When you get images from a photographer, how frequently do you get to meet with them to realize their vision? Are you hired by the photographer? If not, by whom? My situation is rather unique. Uh, the industry has changed a lot. Remember that Photographers did not have access to the kind of tech early on in my industry. So uh, we were, there was a middleman somewhere in between, between the, a photographer would go to the company that could handle the kind of retouching of the caliber that we do. So back in the day, there used to be more of a separation. And mostly I was dealing with the account representatives who would also bring in the photographers and I would work with them. Uh, now it's much more of a personal dynamic. It's a personal relationship. But surprisingly, uh, a lot of photographers just want to be photographers. And, you know, retouching is a completely different skill set and where they might be able to handle the basics. Uh, they don't necessarily want to or have the 20 years worth of experience to be able to handle the complex retouching. So they still like to just direct it. So, so the nature of that has changed over the years, and now there's more of a one-to-one -one relationship depending on the the nature and scale of the project. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, like as a, as a person who does live, I I don't like to do posts. Like I don't like I mean, I, do, I do post. I do, and I that's what I came from was doing all post. But I love the the fact that I can show up, do a live event, and walk away. <laughs> and then, like when I'm done, I hand you a bunch of files. This is what we recorded of the event, and I never want to talk about that event again. Like I'm, yeah. you know, like I'm just like it's. And you think that do you see that as like that's how photographers kind of look at it? They did the shoot, they just want to move on to the next shoot. Yeah, they don't necessarily even even if they have the tech and even if they know how to do it, doesn't necessarily mean they you know they the 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 back-end production process, it's a lot of work, so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. Our next question comes from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How do you see the latest innovations in AI affecting the graphics workflows and capabilities? Are there projects that are now possible that were previously out of reach? How might these tools accelerate delivery times? That's quite a few questions. Can you hit me with the first one again? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so how do you see the latest innovations in AI affecting the graphics workflows and capabilities? 
think that covers I, it. Yeah, I kind of I kind of touched on that one a little bit. Uh, it, it's it's super inspiring for the front end of the creative process. I think that's where its most potential is, but not necessarily the back end just yet. Next question. Uh, you, you, next, can, you, you can go into part part B. There's a part B and C. Sorry if you want to. Oh, we. I think it kind of. We kind of covered it there. Yeah, they kind of got it. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Jason Bache from Albuquerque, New Mexico is back. How much of your retouching is designed to be edited on the fly if you get notes back from the creative? I'm wondering if a true Photoshop master can reverse anything as quickly as is explained to them. He's just talking about speed. Like if you're super good, can you handle corrections and difficult clients on the fly? I'm trying to interpret the the question. Um, Do you have a lot of clients that sit over your shoulder? No. I don't. <laughs> Do you like clients sitting over your shoulder? No. I don't. <laughs> Just let me do my thing and I'll make it None look of us great. Do. No, no, occasionally, you know, if if they're if the situation calls for it, well nowadays it's screen sharing. Say, hey, you know, let's pull up screen share. If I have a specific question where something is not necessarily clear, of course, yeah, I'll yeah. invite somebody in, you know, to say, hey, let, let's clear up these few issues, but uh, if I'm clear on what needs to be done, and usually I have a pretty good idea, then just let me do my thing, and I'll I'll make it look great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or in this case, I mean, I haven't actually done. I've done again. I I was much more of a director for a long time, so I'll, I'll either do it myself and make it look great, or I'll direct it to look great one way or another. So yeah. Next question. Our next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. You mentioned the balance between accuracy and aesthetics. Do you think that the unrealistic aesthetics of fashion advertising, for example, have had a negative effect on youth self-esteem? Oh my gosh. I was asked this question a long time ago and I have an answer for you. And I've actually put a lot of thought into that. You know, in, in the social media generation where everybody has access to these filters and tools to make themselves look one way on social media and 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 another you know in in real life they just aren't are something completely different there there was that i used to look through fashion magazines and everything is perfected the images are perfected the products are perfected, especially for women <laughs> you know i did fashion and beauty advertising for god knows how long and i was perfecting every single pore on the skin i was just trying to make sure everything is. i'm like this does not exist in real life and to the extent that women are looking at this and internalizing or men or you know same thing with men it's the same thing it's it's a standard it's different when it's product Product is one thing, but when it's lifestyle and you're making such an idealized version of a person, it, you know, how ethical is that? And I have an answer. Um, you don't necessarily, a lot of the things that we do are, we're taking, you know, skin was not necessarily made to be enlarged, first of all, and zoomed in way close right and when we went from you know standard definition to you know to, to, to 4k for example the makeup standards for women became a completely different experience and for for actors in general you could see all the imperfections in there in the skin and everything so when you're when you're zooming in that close on the face imperfections come out that you would never see in a normal scenario and when you're walking through a, a, a retail store and you see huge posters 
and you're zoomed in that tight on skin, it's not pretty. It's just not pretty. So there's some circumstances where it's it's more of the context. You're zoomed in on a microscopic level on people's skin, and, and that's not necessarily aesthetically pleasing, and there needs to be some cleanup there. You, you, but on the other hand, you're creating, uh, when you're creating an ideal that doesn't necessarily exist, well, advertisers do that because they're trying to sell an ideal. I, as a, as a retoucher, and, a, and a, I'm trying to meet the, de- the demands that the industry is asking me to do, but where where does the ethical question lie? Is it in the is it is it the companies? Is it is it me as an artist? Am I going to say no? I'm not going to do this for eth- ethical reasons. I can't really draw that line. I can say that there is a purpose for it that you don't necessarily want to see skin as it really is uh, when you're flipping through these magazines. You want to see it cleaned up a little bit. Um, but it's pushed us up such an extreme. Um, but the same thing has taken place now on social media. So the same thing that corporations were doing to try to sell an ideal and get you to buy their product how many years ago, now everybody's doing with their social media. So I think it's just human nature to try to present an idealized version of yourself that doesn't necessarily exist. You know, That's a long-winded answer. Sorry about that. But I actually put a lot of thought into it. No, it's interesting. I was reading an article. There's a book that I haven't read yet about J. Crew. I, I don't know why that you know when I grew up. I mean, some of us are of an age where J. Crew was a big deal, <laughs> you know. And and uh, and it was interesting when they when they designed it. They 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 didn't want anything to look artificial, and so they everything was always. They were talking about because it was a very interesting thing because I grew up looking at J. Crew catalogs when I was when I was in high school, and and the the interesting thing is um, is that they. They had this aesthetic that they want things to be moving. They want people to be doing things. They don't ever want anyone to even have a shade of of something that isn't real, that doesn't feel real. Like they really just created chaos. And, and they said the way we did it was we went to the shoot, we created chaos and took pictures. <laughs> like, you know, and, if, and if, you know, like, you know, and and then and then and that's how we got the images that we wanted. But there was something more real in some ways about that than having to stand there and do it. I'm sure they did a lot of retouching too, but probably, but they wanted to make it look more real and more uh, approachable. And I think that it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years. I think that there's a bounce back right now that's happening that people want to see what, as more of the filters come out, people want to see more real, you know, um, uh, next question. Our next question comes from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. On your blog called the Nest Thermostat Library, you show some Nest photos. What was this project like, objectives, and what were your results? Which Nest product? I've done so many. You're talking about the ones that, the ones that are on the website? What's the, so I guess, what? yeah, the ones on the website, that's, I think that's what we're looking at there. And I think the question is, what, what's, the, what's, the life, what's the life cycle of a project like that look like? Well, they're always updating their projects. I mean, uh, their products usually that that's actually one of the reasons my industry is so viable is there is there's there's always new products coming out. People always need to take a new product and make it look beautiful, right? So even if it's a subtle change, it's still an updated product. Think of like how many iterations of the iPhone has there been? And every single time a new iPhone comes out, it looks almost like the old one, but we need a new creative spin on it and we need new imaging, no matter how subtle the difference is. So um, it really depends. Nest, the actual, 
like the, the life cycle of how long it took for to finish the ad campaign, probably a couple months. Uh, and how long is that? how long it's actually valid just depends on the product life cycle like nest has a longer cycle than apple which is like every six months they're coming up with something so uh just depends good chris and alan i'm sorry this might seem completely rudimentary when you do a product thing like that do they send you do you start with like the cad drawings of of the product and then you hyper realize it yes the cad workflow was actually one of the things i was big on kind of pushing forward because you have the digital asset already created in CAD, right? Why should why should I have to model it from why scratch? Why should I have to model this from scratch? So getting direct CAD, that was actually one of the big breakthroughs. And it also allowed us, it used to be you had to go through an entire product lifecycle. And sometimes you're working with prototypes to start the advertising imagery for a photographic workflow. Uh, you can actually take a cat before your product is even physically available and you can simultaneously have the 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 production cycle going on meaning you're producing the the product and the imaging and advertising cycle going on so so yeah we take the cad directly we convert from the cad and then we can also do it does create a bit of a challenge because there's still product design changes happening. A lot of times you'll start the ad imaging, you'll get everything going, and then they're like, oh, we just create, we just changed it. We now we got to go put back. the battery door. Can you yeah. please put a battery door on this thing? And no, and, and no matter how subtle the change is, we have to redo all that imagery. So uh, it, it's, it presents a valuable opportunity and a lot of efficiencies, but if you're not careful in handling the pipeline, it can also present more challenges because if you're not disciplined about those changes it'll get expensive real quick right so with these pipelines i know a lot of times when we're doing, working in visual effects we we thought about the so when we're doing broadcast work a lot of times we would just punch things out as fast as whatever the fastest way to get it done when we worked in visual effects where the pipeline is slower we would um, really build the files so that they can be editable like, you know, mm -hmm. you think about how do I make them flexible so that I can keep on making changes as the client. Do you find that that's how you have to approach these when you're working with agencies? It's not just, it's not just building the image, the final image that they look at, but building something with enough flexibility that as they ask for changes, you can do them relatively quickly? This is one of the biggest challenges I have faced in the industry. Let me just say hands down. And why is that? Because a photographic workflow is organic. Like you, you, you go, you do a Photoshop, a photo shoot, and then you can just kind of rework and rework and rework and go as many rounds as you want. You're not going to reshoot the photo. You're not going to go back to the photo shoot. You, you, you kind of anchored the photo shoot in that original set. But with when you have simultaneous creative process going on with a, a actually creating a product. And you have directors that are used to having this organic process of being able to change anything at any time, trying to tame that process and say, look, this isn't linear. This is, this is like dominoes. If you, if you make a change at the wrong point of that production pipeline, the further you are down that pipeline, you've just, sorry for lack of a better term, you've screwed yourself. You got to go back and do this from scratch. And it's horribly inefficient. And it's been, I think, one of the biggest challenges in this industry is taming that creative process. It's great what you can do. It's amazing what you can do. 
But if you don't manage the process, the process will manage you. And and uh, if it if you don't make it clear to the creatives that there has to be sign offs, there has to be stages. You don't necessarily have as much flexibility. And that's actually one of the things I've tried to do the most is say, you know, I'm going to put some boundaries here on what you can do, but those boundaries are to add to your creative license, not take it away. So we're not chasing our tail with inefficiencies in the pipeline. So. Yeah. You know, we, we often talk about the fact that a visual effects shot never gets done. It just gets, you just get, you just run out of time. You run out of time <laughs> or budget, right? It, <laughs> exactly. It's just like, this is as good as it's going to be. Unless you're James Cameron, then it, then it gets done. Okay, go uh, ahead, Doug. <laughs> a, a similar thing happened uh, or happens all the time in, in an editorial process. You know, you go back 30 years and sort of the beginning of 30 plus, uh, the beginning of nonlinear editing, you know, people's like, oh, well, we're going to be able to do this so much faster. No, you won't. You're not going to be able to do it any faster because you're going to change your mind a hundred times more because you know how easy it is to go back and make that frame, you know, that shot three frames longer, even though it's at the beginning of your video. And had this been done on tape, I know that most people aren't old enough to to know what that was like, but that would have been a nightmare to 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 make that change. And so the flexibility just begets more changing. Yes, absolutely. That's the biggest challenge, I think, in in this process is uh, keeping the pipeline organized and keeping everybody's expectations in line. I think it's the biggest for any kind of art, any kind of like what I would call applied art, you know, industrial art where we're trying to get somewhere, we're trying to do something for a client what you're talking about is probably the hardest thing for everybody. You know, for mm-hmm. a, every event that I work on, every project I work on, it's that it's understanding that ch- constantly changing things will make it worse at the end. <laughs> like, yeah. like you're better off with the, the decision you made early on than, than the, the right decision. The, the, the one we have now is better than the one that we will try to get to oftentimes. Um, yep. uh, next question. Jason Bache is back with this. Does your workflow always begin with the camera raw plugin? Well, you work a lot in 3D, right? So it's well, most mostly, in- yeah. Well, for for actual photographs, mostly, yeah, we're working with the raw data, and we start with the raw. But a ton of what that's mostly the. It just depends on the context of the shot. If it has live plates and actual photographic plates, yes, we start with raw data. Otherwise, obviously, it's 3D. So, next question. Our next question comes from Eva Schwartz in Pikesville, Maryland. I have 2,000 medium format color slides taken with an Hasselblad camera. To digitize them, what resolution and scanning device would you recommend? Uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly how to answer that question, actually. I will, I will jump in and say I'd probably use an Epson, uh, one of the higher-end Epson flatbeds at this point. Um, I think that the, the DPI is stunningly high, and you probably get pretty much everything that the medium format has to offer out of it. It's like 2,000 DPI or something like that. It's, it's a pretty, pretty high-resolution high scanner. So I have one in my house, <laughs> so I, I recommend it. Uh, next question. Our next question comes from John Merrill in Phoenix, Arizona. I assume you're using a Mac. What kind and probably some high-end monitors? What kind are those? Yeah, I just switched over. Um, the latest generation of MacBook Pros uh, are powerful enough to handle what I do now. 
I just kind of made the switch. I was working on a, a the, you know, full blown desktop workstation. Uh, the the new architecture in the MacBook Pros has proved proven to me mind bogglingly efficient for video editing for 3D. It can handle anything I throw at it, and it's been a lifestyle change for me because I'm no longer pinned to my desk. I take my laptop with me, and I have a full blown production workstation, and I haven't missed a beat, no matter how heavy my scenes. So. That's great. That's been big, big game changer there. Because you've been on a PC for a long time. I was on, well, I'm actually hardcore Mac Apple guy, but yeah, I've been almost forced on the PC depending. Was that an NVIDIA issue? Like, I mean, just being, just the graphics cards? What do you mean? I mean, for the PC, like why? Oh, for the PC. Yeah. Well, do you remember a long time ago, the PC or Mac wasn't a big platform for 3D. If you wanted to do 3D, you had to go back to the PC. It's not so much that way anymore, but. Uh, I did PC for a while when when I needed to do PC, but now it's not so much of an issue. So I'm kind of back on the Mac platform. So that's great. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael is back with this. Do you think that applications like Pixelmator Pro will ever eclipse Adobe's dominance in our industry, especially with Adobe's transition to subscription-only pricing? I don't know. Are you talking about specifically about Adobe Photoshop? I think so, yeah. There's a lot of people trying to find their way I, out of it. I, 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 I Adobe's king. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't see anybody yeah. challenging it anytime soon. Personally, it's so it's hard. Yeah, the DNA is. Pretty it, it's the DNA is built into the. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. You know, it's just it's kind of, you know, it's, it's instinctual for us. That's funny. I use Affinity Photo for a lot of things. Trying to train myself on something else but i still own photoshop because i still have to, there's things that i still can can't figure out how to do inside of affinity photo that i can just open photoshop and just have it done you know and that's the that's the hard part is for if you're doing high-end work that's the that's always the challenge is that there's just going to be more things there that it's hard to replace short. an app when the app is a you know has become a verb like i photoshop something right right <laughs> it's just built into our culture and Unless they do anything completely stupid, um, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Fenwick? Based on the conversation you guys were having earlier about like when uh, certain features came up, uh, I found, I put a link in the, in the thing here, but I found this really great history of all of the features of Photoshop and when they were released and whatnot. So you guys mentioned uh, layers. Layers came out in version three. Yeah. Uh, boom. And then uh, adjustment layers were version four. And version five was a big one with editable type. That was a big deal. And also uh, layer effects. And then also the date. So you had mentioned uh, layers came out in on the Mac September 1994. And yeah. Yeah. The, um, it's, I, it, it's fun to think about. Like I can remember when layer effects came out, I was like, "Oh wow, my life, my life just got way easier." I remember. I mean, just to go back just one second, is is that David Biedney and and Russell, David Biedney and uh, Bert Monroy did a special at the San Francisco um, at the San Francisco Convention, or South San Francisco Convention Center, right by the airport. And I remember flying in for that where the 3.0 release was there. They were walking through the new features and Russell Brown came in with a big wig on and had, had it was crazy Russell Brown. And, uh, but that was, I can still remember that. That was such a, that was like the big release. 3.0 was a giant, was a giant change in what we did. 
Yeah, before that, you had to have your channel ops down. Oh, yeah, that's. I still use. I still use calculations. I I was using it last week. <laughs> you know, like there's still things. Yeah, where you say. Uh, of course, Alan. you were. You know, I specifically remember the location exactly where I was when I heard Photoshop layers were coming out. That tells you how strong of an emotional <laughs> impact it was. Right? Exactly. I'm like, I was walking at a place called Primary Color from the production office to a studio. And I remember somebody telling me, the new version of Photoshop has layers. Oh, yeah. that's, that's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, next question. 20 years ago. Yeah. Our next question comes from John Tenhouse from Minneapolis, Minnesota. What 3D software do you use the most? By choice? <laughs> okay. uh, it, it really depends. Um, and that's actually one of the most frustrating aspects of what we do is every single client kind of has their own preferred software. So I would say right now I'm using Maya the most uh, because of the workflow that I've been concentrating on the last couple of years. But there was times when I was using Moda the most. There was times when I was using Cinema 4D the most. It really kind of depends. But right now, Maya, but not necessarily by choice, just because that's what the pipeline is demanding with the client. Yeah. Last question for the first hour, for the second hour. Douglas Carmichael wants to know what size of MacBook Pro do you have, 14 or 16 inch? 16. <laughs> yeah, like, so, yeah, exactly. pretty, pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm never going to get anyone, Douglas, yeah, ever. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Hey, Alan, it was great to have you on. It was great to be here. Thanks so much. What a great hour. Yeah, yeah, really good to have you have have the conversation with you. And uh, we're going to try to get Alan to come on every once in a while and show do some show and tells and talk talk to us about stuff. So I just wanted to have the have this first hour here um, to have that happen. And, and Alan, uh, what's your big thing right now? Are you is there anything specific that you're that you're focused on at the moment? Just figuring what, out what comes next. Yeah, post COVID, <laughs> post AI. Yeah, exactly. you know, post the move to Houston. I don't necessarily know. I just consider I'm open for a new adventure. I'm just awesome. trying to figure it out with everybody else. So cool, awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. You bet. Thank you. And thanks to our uh, to our producers for all the great questions, keeping this all moving forward. Uh, thanks to the uh, panel. We can't do this without you. And uh, thanks to the incredible team on the back end that is developing, designing how we do this every day and then running it every day and then figuring out what's going to be in it every day. We really appreciate all of your work. Uh, Tlaloc Traversal, 52,000 miles, 84,000 kilometers, 476 bananas for scale, 476 million bananas for scale. Uh, that we covered with all those questions today. And um, yeah, so it's good. Let's go ahead and uh, jump into After Hours. That's a lot of potassium. That's so a deadly amount of potassium. Cassie, Alan, this is the part where we just talk under the credits, but we whisper. We whisper under the credits. And we just... Alan, I think you said that the layers was... Chris doesn't know how to whisper. Except for Fenwick. He's grumpy at all. Disappointed. I think you said it was 20 years ago. Layers came out 30 years ago. I know. This is what made me feel so old. I remember when we didn't have layers. We had, uh, seriously? we had to edit all of our stuff in the snow. Walking yeah. Remember remember Kai's power goo. Oh. Uh, yeah. I remember creating a bunch of lower thirds for a broadcast show in Photoshop before layer effects. And I took them to the show, to the location where they were going to be used. And it was a, it was a broadcast facility in the Bay Area. And it was like, this isn't real. And I said, okay, let's see how that works out for you.